Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we hear from portfolio manager Steve McMillan. For Canadian investors, Steve manages Fidelity Small Cap America Fund, American Equity Fund and co-manages Fidelity Can-Am Opportunities Class alongside Mark Schmel. Steve and Glenn Davidson, Regional Vice President of Sales in Ontario, sit down to discuss Steve's current outlook and positioning. Currently, he says small cap industrial companies with a focus on professional services are attractive, whereas the utility sector is not appealing because it lacks protection that most investors are looking for. In addition to his portfolio positioning, Steve also discusses the impacts of inflation and quantitative tightening and why businesses he invests in may excel in the later stages of the business cycle. He adds that having niche businesses in his portfolio that dominate the markets and generate a lot of cash flow that can compound in U.S. dollars is appealing to his fund. This podcast was recorded on October 20th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. And I think we should set the scene for Small Cap America. If you could talk about the positioning of the portfolio today. So the portfolio doesn't change greatly over time because it's relatively longer term focused. So turnover is relatively lower. But I would say the biggest changes in the portfolio would be uh, a focus away actually from some of the more defensive areas of the market like state utilities and more of a focus on what's going to do well coming out of the recession. Some of the more cyclical, some of the more interesting businesses that I think can do well through a cycle, but that I think are very attractively priced right now. So you talked about coming out of a cycle, talked about coming out of a recession. Talk about your thoughts on the markets as we stand today. So I think sometimes we often think, when do you want to buy stocks? You want to buy stocks coming out of a recession when you're going into an expansion and when do you want to sell stocks? You want to sell stocks when we're in a recession. Mm. In reality, the market is a forecasting tool. And so the decline we've seen in the market right now is the market's way of telling us we're going to be going into a recession. And as we get closer to that recession, the opportunity to actually own stocks gets closer and closer. Uh, and I think unlike past market cycles, uh, I think the market has very ruthlessly priced in this current recession. Uh, and so I think from a market standpoint, there's a lot of areas that have really taken a lot of the risk reward, um, the risk side of it off the table. And I think there's more of a positive reward uh, opportunity to, in, to invest in a lot of companies. I do think there's a bit of a difference from large cap versus small cap. Uh, I think the small caps priced in that recession much faster. If you look back over the last year and a half, the small cap index, the Russell 2000, actually peaked a long time ago. It actually peaked back in February of 2021, whereas the S&P really only peaked at the very end of last year. So small caps took an unfair level of abuse, if you will, through the, the market that we've seen 
Why is that? Is that a lot of psychology too? I think if you look back through history, there's been periods of time where the market has really unduly favored mega cap stocks. Um, the previous time that really comes to mind for me would be the late 90s and the dot-com bubble. And people often associate that time in the market with uh, the NASDAQ and dot-coms that didn't make money going to crazy valuations with the NASDAQ going from 1,000 to 5,000 and back to 1,000. But if you actually look under the hood, companies like GE were trading at 35 times earnings. Walmart was 35 times earnings. Um, a lot of businesses that were on the larger cap side, whether that be Procter & Gamble, et cetera, went to very high valuations, uh, whereas smaller cap stocks like the Russell 2000 went to very low relative PEs, relative price to books. And then what we saw over the subsequent three years, while the broader market was falling, you actually had uh, small cap stocks outperforming and, and actually rising. And I think when you look today, you can make a case where I think some of the larger cap stocks have been given uh, too much of a benefit on the valuation and the small caps have been beaten down too much. So if you look at things like relative PE, relative price to book, this is the lowest valuations we've seen the Russell 2000 index at the small cap stocks since that time period 20 plus years ago. So talk about the division between quality because within that small cap categorization, there are great companies and there aren't great companies. And I think back to the 90s, there were companies that were just shells. They didn't obviously recover but those that had quality behind them did recover. How do you look for quality within the portfolio that you've built? So I think broadly in the market right now, there's an unwinding of the low quality trade. So if you were to look back to 2020 through probably mid to late 2021, um, the quality or the, the uh, qualities of a stock that were outperforming over that time period were things like um, the higher risk, the better, um, the less earnings they made, the better, um, the less cash flow they had, the worse balance sheet. All these things were associated with stocks that were going up. The more risk you took, the more money you made. And a lot of that has been deflating. And I still think there's more of that um, bubble to burst. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think we're at the stage where you need to go in and buy a lot of these uh, growth companies that are down a very large amount, 50, 60, 80%, because they were up so much. Whereas if you dig deeper in the market, though, there's actually a remarkable number of companies that generate a lot of cash flow that are high quality businesses that have been that proverbial baby thrown out with the bathwater. And so what I'm looking for right now is the businesses that I think are secular growers that from the top of an economy to the next top of the economy are growing from the bottom of the economy to the next bottom, they're growing, but the market is pricing in as being purely cyclical. And so... I'm finding opportunities to invest in companies now that I think uh, the market is pricing in a recession and a recession that will stay, mm -hmm. whereas I think these businesses are secular growth businesses and it's an opportunity to buy them at a really attractive price. And they're going to lead us out of the recession. Yeah, I, I believe what, what's going to happen is that we're going to uh, reach a stage when it becomes obvious that companies um, have cut earnings, that the, those earning cuts are actually in the stock prices that we're in a recession and the market starts to think about how we're coming out of a recession, that a lot of these stocks start to work. Um, I think the investment experience though that investors have had in a number of different markets over the last really 15 years or so may not be the best analogy. We've had a number of very sharp V bottoms. So think about what happened in COVID, think about what happened um, 
in 2000, early 2019. Um, you know, I think that this could be more of a slower recovery. And the reason is we don't have the Fed to bail us out. We don't have loose monetary policy that's going to come back because of the risk of inflation. And so I think this will be more of a longer, slower grinding recovery, both economically and in the market. And I think what helps you outperform and compound is companies trading at lower valuations and high cash flows, which reminds me a lot of when I took the fund over 10 plus years ago. And uh, for the sake of our viewers' clients, we should also establish a small cap in the United States versus a small cap in Canada because the name makes people nervous sometimes. And there's a big difference. And if you could just give us a comparison. Yeah. When, when people say small caps in Canada, um, they picture a couple of guys in Calgary with a map on a table. Um, and I think, you know, that's very different. Market caps on the venture exchange are tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions. Um, a small cap, the average market cap in my portfolio is probably in the six to seven billion dollar range. Um, there's probably only about maybe 50 companies in Canada that have a market cap bigger than that. And so the companies I'm investing in would really be considered mid to large cap in a lot of Canadian portfolios. Thank you. Questions just come in on currency, U.S. dollars relative to Canadian. Does that factor into your decisions at all? So I never try to call the currency. Um, the way I actually look at it is if we think about what's happened over the last six to 12 months, this has been a great example of why it's good to have the U.S. dollar currency exposure. In periods of stress in the economy, periods of stress in the market, generally when asset prices are falling, mm -hmm. the one asset that is often rising is the U.S. dollar. And so if you're invested in U.S. dollar risk assets, like the last year, you've lost money on your stocks, but they're priced in U.S. dollars. So in Canadian dollars, you it's actually mitigated your loss. Right. The flip side of that is when we come out of it into a stronger economy, you're making money on your stocks, which is great, but you may be giving back a little bit of it on your currency. So it actually reduces your amount of volatility. And so I think having U.S. dollar exposure in any portfolio, I think, is really key from a uh, risk allocation perspective. And of course, we have a number of options to deal with currency. If you're interested, do talk to your sales team. Um, another question that's just come in is a great one. I'm sure everybody's wondering about is what sectors are you finding most attractive right now in this environment? Sure. I'm going to start by the flip side of that question. What am I not finding attractive? All right. Uh, and one area that I've been um, divesting fairly aggressively is the utility sector. And it might be a little counterintuitive because you would think going into a recession, you want the stability of utilities and their earnings. And that's what the stocks were providing for a good part of 2022. Um, but now we've reached the stage with interest rates rising so aggressively. As an equity investor, you have the option between being invested in the dividend paying equity, who will have uh, growth in that dividend, or you can invest in the fixed income or the bonds of the same company. And in the past, the decision was really easy. If you wanted to invest in a utility bond, you might only make 2%, and you could actually invest in the equity with a 2.5% dividend yield, and it would grow. Now, though, the math has flipped a bit. The dividend yield might be 3%, but you can now invest at 55 6% for the fixed income. And so I think it's not as attractive. I think the risk is that the multiples in that space are going to continue to contract so the dividend yields come up. 
So I don't think they offer the defense that most investors are looking for from them. What I do think is more interesting uh, is if I look at some of the small cap uh, industrial businesses, more on the professional services than opposed to um, any metal bending type of uh, typical classical industrial companies. Uh, and similarly on the cyclical businesses, uh, I think some of the secular growth consumer companies uh, I think can do quite well if you buy them at the right price given how much they're beaten up. And so one of the areas that I'm focusing on the industrial side is companies that are levered to uh, wage inflation, that actually benefit from wage inflation. And so that would be companies like um, uh, ASGN or K-Force that I own in my portfolio that do IT staffing. And so my thesis is that the businesses from a headcount standpoint are gonna be more resilient than the market expects because when I talk to people like the president of JP Morgan, they'll tell you that their spend on IT is critical to their strategy. And it's not as easy as cutting back because there's a recession. They have to be investing because they have to be competitive. And so these companies will benefit from wage inflation and they'll benefit from the need to increase IT spend over time. So you typically run a very low turnover portfolio, portfolios, but it sounds like this year you've been making some changes because of interest in some areas and disinterest in others. So there's been some change. So a lot of the changes have been, um, I always say to my analysts, make sure that you're uh, acting and you're not reacting. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these things have been put in place over the last one to two years. Uh, and so the changes on the utility side have been more recent. The changes in getting into the cyclicals have been happening um, more on a kind of a gradual basis over the last year or so. And the pace is accelerating as the opportunity is accelerating. You've got a Excuse me, you've got a tech component in Small Cap America that's at around 16% now. Tell us about that. So I think when people think about small cap technology companies, they might often think about software businesses, maybe semiconductor stocks. Um, I'm much more focused on businesses that are more in the business services, IT services side. So more people-based businesses, uh, long-term contracts, companies that can uh, have a recurring nature to their business so you don't have the... Um, really the product risk uh, and the technological risk that goes along with it. Another question just came in from our viewers. Don't forget to hit that uh, button on the Q&A link, uh, which is the biggest risks in the small cap space right now. I think the biggest risk to the small cap space is the same risk that, hap that is happening in the broader uh, global um, all asset classes, really, both debt debt and equity. Uh, and that's really inflation and interest rates and their impact on the economy. And so I think the best case scenario right now is that we go into a mild recession that cools off consumer demand, uh, brings down wage inflation, and we have a decrease of inflation without a remark remarkable increase in unemployment. That would be your classic soft landing that isn't very often achieved, but is the goal. Uh, the more worst case scenario is that inflation remains persistent and that the Federal Reserve has to stay at a higher rate. And even as inflation is easing, it's not easing to the rate that's required. And so unemployment is rising, but the Fed can't come to our rescue with lower interest rates, quantitative easing. And so uh, I think in that scenario, you have uh, a continuation of compressing multiples and declining earnings. And so I mentioned earlier that I didn't think we were gonna have a V bottom in the market. 
And the reason is a lot of what's happening right now is a compression in the multiples in the market because interest rates are rising, because there are all now alternatives to equities in the fixed income market. Uh, and so I think that regardless of what happens with earnings, I don't think we're going to get the same uh, valuation expansion that we've maybe had in past cycles. How extreme do things need to get to take the consumer to a different level and really slow down the spending that we've been seeing? So we've already seen it at the lowest quintile of income demographics in the United States. And the reason is that lowest um, income demographic spends everything they make because they don't have the ability to save because their income is so low. And so if you have $100, that is your entire income, when the cost of food goes up, when the cost of fuel goes up, your only choice is to take it out of some other part of your spending. And so you've already seen a weakening in that consumer. The problem with the broader inflation and economy is as you go higher up, the higher end consumer is better able to deal with that inflation and they're able to take it out of their savings without impacting consumption. Mm -hmm. And consumer savings has broadly been quite strong because the amount of fiscal stimulus that's been in the economy over the last couple of years. And so I think what we're going to see is that we need to see unemployment start to rise more materially. Um, but the issue right now is there's a labor shortage. And so you have to actually reduce the demand for labor just to come into equilibrium before you can get into an increasing unemployment rate. So the hope is in that soft landing scenario is by just reducing the excess demand for labor, we can have people uh, having lower wage inflation and then lower overall inflation uh, without creating mar marked amounts of unemployment. Housing prices have been a comfort for people for years. That's changing. Can you talk about housing? Because that's obviously affecting how people feel about going out and spending. So one of the biggest differences between the Canadian housing market and the U.S. housing market, it market is the structure of the mortgages. Uh, so the mortgage market in Canada, as most people here are familiar with, are you either choose a variable rate uh, you choose a typically a five-year fixed rate, or if you're lucky enough, you don't have a mortgage. And mm -hmm. so in Canada, that's roughly a third, a third, a third. A third of people float, a third of people are fixed, and a third don't have a mortgage. In the U.S., that math is a little bit different. The typical mortgage in the U.S. is actually a 30-year mortgage. So you have a mortgage that doesn't renew for 30 years unless you move. So what's happened is that over the last two to 10 years, people's mortgage rates have been going down and down and down. And with that 30-year mortgage, you can actually refinance at a lower rate if rates go down. But if rates go up, you don't have to take the higher rate. So it's called convexity. It's an option that's built into them. And so as rates were falling, that was great. So most people have a mortgage in the U.S. that might be in the 2 or 3% range. Whereas right now, if you wanted to get a mortgage today, it would be 7.2%. And so what happens is you think, I've got a two-bedroom house, I'd really like a three-bedroom house. But right now I have a 2.5% mortgage, and I would have to give up that 2.5% mortgage and replace it with a seven and a quarter mortgage. And so the decision becomes, well, I'm not going to move because the cost of my monthly payment is going to be too much. Mm -hmm. And so what you're seeing is the number of houses on the market is going down fairly markedly, uh, and it's reducing supply. And so the people that do want to move have less uh, houses to choose from. So supply and demand is actually relatively imbalanced. Whereas in Canada, 
you have enough people that have floating rate mortgages that if they want to move, they're just going to go from one floating rate mortgage that they're probably not happy with right now to another floating rate mortgage they're also not happy with. And so the market seems to be repricing on a much faster basis. I think in Toronto, prices are down about 17% from February, whereas in the U.S., you haven't seen that uh, drop in prices as of yet. Interesting. Let's talk about some of the companies that have been in your portfolios uh, for quite a while. And actually, we have a question about online education. So I want to ask you about Grand Canyon Education and a couple of others. But let's start with that. So with, um, with Grand Canyon, um, the stock has been relatively flat for a period of time that I'm not super happy with. But one of the reasons is, is that uh, one of their big um, programs that they offer is nursing. And you would think during a pandemic where there's a huge nursing shortage, this should be their sweet spot. Mm -hmm. But one of the nuances is that the hospitals are so busy, they don't have time to train new nurses. So it's a bit of a vicious cycle. And so the nurses that want to become nurses, the students can't get placements. And so we've seen a decline in enrollment. Now, the good news is as the hospitals are learning to kind of deal with the waves, they're creating the capacity for nurses to come back. And so I think you'll see an acceleration in enrollment and an improvement in the multiple of that company. And one of the things that was hurting them was that the economy was so strong, people didn't feel the need to go back and improve their skills because there's so many jobs to be had. So this would be a great example of a counter-cyclical business that as the economy gets worse, it's actually better for their business. And uh, Cooper Industries, still in the portfolio as well. Yeah, Cooper is a great steady recurring business. Uh, contact lenses, there's about four companies in the world that dominate the contact lens market. Very stable and recurring. One thing that they've been hurt from recently is currency. So they uh, have a mismatch between where they make their lenses and where they sell them, tend to make them in US dollars, sell them in pounds, yen, euros. Uh, and so with the wild swings that we've had in currencies, um, that's put them on the wrong side of margins. I think over time, those things recalibrate through pricing, but in the short term, it is hurt. Um, uh, it's hurt margins, but the revenue side uh, from a volume standpoint, I think remains very resilient because people continue to wear contact lenses throughout uh, an economic recession. And Charles River Labs has been in your portfolio for quite a while. Is that a continuing play on healthcare? That's really a focus on uh, development of new drugs. Uh, there's been a lot of different in improvements in drug development, including things like cell and gene therapy. Uh, and Charles River Labs is at the center of that, offering uh, preclinical services, helping drugs essentially come to market. So they're a outsourced service provider for the drug industry. And so as you see large numbers of biotech companies uh, investing in new drugs, Charles River is the company that they go to because they don't have the infrastructure to run the trials, to run the preclinical work. Uh, and so I think as long as you believe in science, uh, I think that the company benefits uh, over a long period of time. Right now what's happening is that the amount of biotech funding has gone down fairly materially because of the fall in the equity markets and the amount of risk taking. Um, my view is that over time, good drugs will get funded. Uh, I think it'll happen more at the private equity level, uh, the venture capital level, and from large pharma acquiring and investing in a lot of these drugs. What is a name that we haven't talked about that you're very excited about within your portfolio that you'd like to share with our viewers? 
You know, I think there's a, I always like to talk about consumer stocks because I think that it, it's easy to relate to and helps people kind of understand the way I'm thinking about it. And so, you know, one of the newer uh, positions in the portfolio that would be relatively small right now, but we'll be building, uh, would be a company called uh, Fox Factory. Um, I think in the shorter term, there's going to continue to be volatility. I'm not uh, of the view that we've necessarily hit the bottom on the stock or the market, but I think what's interesting about it is what they make is shocks for mountain bikes, um, for off-road vehicles, uh, for ATVs, and the market is really pricing it as a, as a COVID winner. More people went out and bought mountain bikes. They benefited from that. That is very clearly going to come back very hard the other way. But going into COVID, Fox Factory was actually growing revenue uh, 15 to 20% a year over probably 10 years. And one of the big areas of benefit for them is uh, probably a lot of you don't know this, but Glenn loves to drive a, a Ford Raptor off-road on, on the weekend. Uh, they would make the shocks that go in vehicles like that. Those are increasing in popularity. And the demand for them is actually always above their supply before COVID, before the supply shortages. And that remains the case. And so as that category continues to grow within an auto, they're going to benefit from that. As the growth in ATVs happens, uh, going from a typical uh, one-person rider to the called side-by-sides, that grows. Um, and then at the other big growth driver for Fox Factory that a lot of North Americans not, may not appreciate is the growth in electronic bikes, e-bikes. And so um, people that don't want to pedal their mountain bike up the hill are investing in e-bikes that will help pedal it up for them uh, and also using them to commute to work and whatnot. And so this has been a big growth driver. And the great thing is they're quite heavy and they need shocks. Uh, and so the stock has become uh, very attractively priced. The company has some very aggressive targets for earnings for 2025. Uh, and if they hit those, the stock should do uh, quite well. But I think it's going to be an uncertain next six to 12 months. But I'm not Looking at that time horizon, I'm looking out in that kind of three to five plus year secular growth. Full disclosure, it's a Jeep Wrangler that I have, and I do have Fox shocks, and they're very good. So I'm glad <laughs> to hear that's in your portfolio. I did not know that coming into this conversation. Um, we have to wrap very soon. So your thoughts on where small cap America, given the psychology around name and, and the value connotation as well, where does it fit within a portfolio for our viewers? I think if you looked back over the last five years, the small cap space has been a fairly material laggard versus large cap U.S. equities. Um, I think that the days of just buying five very large cap stocks and watching them go up are probably behind us. You have stocks like Tesla down down today. A lot of the sheen uh, has come off a lot of these mega cap businesses. And I think that small caps are going to shine uh, much more than they have over the last five years. And so having a allocation to businesses that are niche companies that dominate uh, their markets, that generate a lot of cash flow, that can compound over a long period of time uh, in US dollars, I think is very attractive. This reminds me a lot of the setup coming out of the financial crisis when I took the fund over 10 plus years ago. Uh, and I think there's a lot of good days ahead for US small cap stocks and small cap American fund. That's a very compelling conclusion. Thank you very much, Steve McMillan. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. 
while visiting Fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.